This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. Ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, December 13th, the Washington Post gathered local elected officials, industry leaders, and experts for a discussion about the intersection of technology, mobility, and the future of cities. There have never been more ways to get from point A to point B. From car shares to scooters to autonomous vehicles, the options are numerous and increasingly convenient and sustainable. In this segment, we will hear from mobility innovators and experts about how new kinds of transportation are transforming urban environments. Let's listen. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jonathan Capehart. I'm a columnist, opinion writer here at The Washington Post. Uh, As you can see, I have a stellar lineup of mobility experts assembled here to discuss the latest developments in urban transportation and micromobility, a.k.a. the rise of the scooter, as we saw talked about in the video. We have the president and CEO of Eno Transportation Center, Robert Puentes, Brandon Pollack, the director of global civic engagement and strategy at the electric scooter company, Bird. And right next to me is Rachel Holt, head of new mobility at Uber. Now, before we start, uh, I want to remind you, um, our audience, with here, here or possibly watching live stream, that you can tweet your questions to the panel using the hashtag post live and I will get them here and I will endeavor to ask the questions. Uh, Let me get started with you, Rachel. Um, In October, Uber launched its own line of scooters through the company Jump. And there have also been reports that Uber is considering a multi-billion dollar acquisition of electric scooter startups Bird and Lime. Um, Care to give us all an update on those conversations? Sure. So, um, so Uber obviously has uh, has has been a, a significant player uh, in the mobility space um, for for the last uh, eight years or so, and it's it's amazing when you actually think about the timeline. It hasn't been that long uh, that that Uber's been around. But we we acquired a company called Jump uh, in uh, May of, of this year, and Jump uh, has a uh, an e-bike, a pedal assisted bike. You can see them in in Washington here. Um, and use them, um, and we've also now launched our own uh, scooter uh, scooter product, uh, as you mentioned, in in October. So we are very bullish um, on the uh, concept of micro mobility, the mm-hmm. concept of how um, it can complement existing options. But we're thinking about this in a far broader way than just scooters. So we've got a transit project that we're working on right now, which is about uh, integrating with public transit systems, and we really believe that uh, Uber uh, is is really the only company that's positioned to be a one-stop shop for getting around your city, and and so that's really where where we're focused. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to comment on uh, on speculation uh, of acquisitions, but we uh, we are all in uh, on this space, and uh, we we have a uh, meaningful a. Oh, more than a billion dollar budget uh, next year that we have allocated towards our own efforts. But is it unreasonable for us to even think about or talk about the fact that it it wouldn't be unreasonable for for Uber to acquire Bird or Lime? I think, you know, again, we, because I think Uber has, has positioned itself 
very well uh, in this space. And I think uh, there is more than a single mode here. And I think seeing the platform, and really this has been uh, an effort that, that Uber has undertaken, we don't think it's just about one mode. We think it's broader. And so um, we are uh, certainly companies approach us. We talk to companies all the time uh, that are in this space to understand better whether there's a potential partnership, how complementary it is. Right now, again, we are really focused um, on on continuing to build out uh, the, the Jump product and the Jump brand. And we've got you know over a billion dollars that's mm -hmm. allocated for next year toward, towards that effort. Um, are you, I hear you in terms of uh, expanding your, your transportation network. Are you afraid of sort of um, cannibalizing yourself? I mean, wouldn't expanding into micromobility scooters take away from the demand for Uber drivers? So you, you know, I've been at Uber for, for over seven years at this point, and, and uh, you sound a lot like the people in, in 2013 that said, why launch UberX? Because you've got this Uber black car product and you're going to cannibalize yourself. You sound a lot like the people who said, why launch Uber Pool? Because you've got this UberX product. And for us, this isn't, you know, we really believe um, we have the potential to play a really big part in, in all these modes. Um, and, you know, we have, we have never as a company been afraid of cannibalizing ourselves. And I think that is one of the reasons we've continued to innovate um, over, you know, again, uh, over the last eight years that, that Uber's been around. Mm -hmm. All right, so I've had no luck with, with Rachel Brandon, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you. Can you give us any insight into a potential deal with Uber? I'm, I'm not surprised. It was your first question out of the, out of the gate. Is, uh, try to stir some controversy. But, not controversy, uh, just trying to get some information. in the mood. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, look, I mean, our, our founder and CEO has uh, said publicly that we're not for sale. Uh, and that we're focusing on executing uh, as a as a scooter company, uh, e-mobility company, and you know we were the uh, we were the first one to launch, and so we've are very much all in on kind of building out this uh, scooter revolution as we saw. I mean, you know, a year ago we weren't even having this conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, scooters weren't even part of of the discussion here. Now, you know, you just had three mayors going and talking about scooters and how they are transforming their cities. Uh, so you're very much seeing this kind of change in thinking, but you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't have anything exciting to share with you today. Well, I'm really disappointed in this. <laughs> but so we're, then, since you were the first, were you surprised by just how popular um, the scooters have become mm. in such a short, seemingly short period of time? No, it's you know, it's really interesting, and you know, our, our uh, uh, Travis likes to talk about uh, the fact that how he got in all in on scooters, which was, you know, for, for Christmas, he gave his, his girls uh, bikes, and uh, so bicycles, and, uh, you know, they, it was great, it was all excited, and then the very next day, they basically, you know, said, oh, we don't want to ride these, we want to ride our scooters again. And so, because it was a mode of transportation that was fun, like, we've seen kids riding around on scooters, but, you know, why couldn't adults have e-scooters to uh, for their morning commutes or, you know, uh, riding within a, you know, two, two, within two miles. Um, so, you know, are we surprised and popular? Like, certainly it's exceeded all of our wildest expectations. We didn't think, you know, we'd be in 120 plus markets uh, after just, you know, 14 months. Um, but 
at the same time, we're not surprised, given the fact that you're seeing in cities where people are kind of clamoring to get out of, a car, out of their cars uh, with all the congestion, finding new modes of transportation, people that live in uh, you know, underserved communities that live in transportation deserts. You know, finally, we have a, a mode available where they can get to a bus, a metro, or get to, get to you know, wherever they're going, uh, get it going to work. So you know we're we're seeing this that it's you know the the popularity is not um, just in downtown areas. It's mm -hmm. we're seeing that people across all different communities. You know here in D.C., people across all eight wards want to be able to have uh, great access to affordable transportation, and you know scooters are a big part of that. So you know. Uh, did we think we'd be in this many markets this fast? Probably not, but um, it's just a testament to how excited people are about having a, uh, a new mode of transportation to get around. So this story about, uh, uh, about the young girls made me think, well then, because scooters, I just think of kids. Kids mm -hmm. like pedaling their way down on two wheels down sidewalks. So what are the, the demographics, if you know, of the people who are actually using your scooters? Are they, you know, Old folks like me, or are they are they millennial? You don't know, um, <laughs> or or are they millennials, or are they twenty somethings, mm -hmm. late teens, or do they run the the range? Yeah, they they really do run the range. I think one of the things that we're seeing is uh, we, we see actually uh, more women than men, for example. Uh, we so that that's you know that's one area, but frankly. It's, it really runs the gamut. It's not, you know, the 18-year-old or 22-year-old. I mean, we see people, you know, I'd say more, more of our riders are probably in their 30s, 40s, uh, not just the, uh, the young college kids. While mm -hmm. we're operating there, too, on college campuses, um, it, what's great is, again, because it's a mode of transportation that everybody can use, and so we gear to focus on educating riders of all different subsets. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't mean to focus on you because you're the, the, the scooter person. I'm the scooter in the room. Um, <laughs> um, I was going to have you ride up on that scooter. I should have made you do that. That would have been fun. You know, I actually have not ridden, ridden on one. Uh -oh. um, I'm actually kind of afraid. Right. But that's, we'll, we'll change that. This is not we'll a therapy session. This is, okay, this, is all, this is all about you. All about okay. you. So uh, one more question for you. What, <clears throat> since you said you're, you're, the, you're the first, what makes you different from all the others who have come after you? Mm -hmm. I think there's there's a number of differentiators on what we what we've done. Uh, so one, uh, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk more about safety. You know, we have looked at ourselves as kind of a leader on this front. There's obviously a lot of concerns around safety, which is why we were the first ones to make sure you could scan your ID, uh, your driver's license. Uh, we were also the you know really the the first ones that you know really thought about how do we invest in our infrastructure and, and protected bike lanes, being really advocates there. Uh, we launched a you know, safety advisory board with David Strickland. Uh, we're working with cities directly. Uh, I know that in the last panel they were talking a lot about sharing data. And so we, we launched a, a tool called Community Mode, so that way both cities, riders could report uh, various issues going on in their communities. If people are just leaving scooters all over the place or it's a, you know, a no riding zone. So we've been very active. We've really looked at the sense of, you know, taking the mantra of, you know, think about cities as, as customers, mm -hmm. right? How would you want to treat your riders? Well, that's how you should be engaging with cities. And so we've taken really that forward thinking approach, um, you know, and the, and the other thing I'll just quickly mention is like we take our scooters off the road at nine o'clock at, at, at night right, for those kinds of safety concerns. People were, you know, drinking late at night and everything. So there's a number of different areas that we've thought about of, you know, engagement with stakeholders, 
what kind of tools people want, what kind of infrastructure people want, uh, because, you know, frankly, you're starting to hear a lot of the recycled concerns that we heard about bicycles, you know, 100 plus years ago, they're saying about scooters. So mm -hmm. we want to be able to change that narrative so that way people feel more comfortable, uh, people feel more safe, and then our ecosystem is, is uh, working in, mm -hmm. in better harmony. Mm -hmm. Robert, um, we here at the Washington Post on the editorial page have been writing a lot about, about scooters, about the number of scooters, about safety. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering from your perspective, are U.S. cities prepared for the future of mobility, whether it's from the regulatory aspect or the infrastructure aspect? They're getting there. I mean, this is an incredibly exciting and dynamic time in transportation today. Um, we are seeing new kinds of partnerships. We're seeing new kinds of innovations. And all this is happening, I think, at the, at the intersection of transportation and technology. Right, that's what's kind of forcing this conversation. Um, and part of this, I think, is from, there's a famous quote I like where the guy says, um, we've run out of money, it's time to start thinking. Right? So we used to do transportation one way. We would pump a lot of money into all of these problems. That has changed. Right? So cities are starting to try to innovate by themselves. They're working with new kind of partners. They're taking new risks. They're learning from one another. And that last panel I thought, thought was great because we see around the country and really an insatiable demand from cities to learn from one another. Tell me what happened in this place and how do I replicate that over here? What, they, what failed over here and how can I do something better here in this, in this region? So it's a really exciting and dynamic time. So there's a lot of optimism. The challenge, I think, is that we're starting to see a whole lot of fault lines starting to emerge, which you'd expect. We talked about data, we talked about safety, carbon, social equity, all of these things have started to emerge. We have to deal with those, but I think cities are right and really positioned to do that right now. You know, it's interesting that you, you referenced the previous panel where, where mayors are learning from each other, talking to each other, relying on each other for uh, best practices, but um, the way to do things. And the one thing that was not mentioned at all was the federal government. Is that because cities and localities have pretty much written Washington off because it's not a useful partner? Well, all evidence to the contrary. I mean, there's been this large conversation about infrastructure for the last certain number of years. Haven't really moved a big infrastructure bill. They've done things on aviation. They've done a couple of other things. There's an auto autonomous vehicle legislation, mm -hmm. which was supposed to pass this year. They've got to kick that to next year. So there is some activity. But, uh, you know, this is America. Places are going to continue to innovate. They're going to continue to engage in these kinds of partnerships. And in the absence of a whole lot of strong action from federal Washington, cities are going to pick up that slack for sure. But can, but can cities um, ramp up without having the federal government as an active partner? We certainly need, I think we would prefer to have a strong and reliable federal partner. Some of that is around funding. I mean, I think the mayor's talked about this earlier, you know, that um, a lot of places are coming to them looking for cash. They've got their own fiscal problems. So you'd want the federal government to continue to support places to, you know, with some money. Um, but what places need now is some kind of certainty, standards, something that we can smooth out around the country so that private firms are not having to do the same, having to have the same kind of conversation over and over and over again. That's one area where the federal government can set some uniform standards for places they can go in and not have to replicate those conversations in 50 different states or thousands of different uh, municipalities. Mm -hmm. Brandon made um, the point that 
you know, bird is able to be in all eight wards. It's it's sort of a it's everywhere. Anyone and everyone has has access to it. And I'm just wondering if since you are you're not someone with a vested interest. You're you're not a scooter company. You're not a vast transportation transportation company. You take one here today, though. So, <laughs> I, I is he right? Um, are companies like Bird, and I'm focus I'm focusing on you because well you brought yeah, it up. I'm, I'm under fire. Is he is he telling the truth? Are are these micro mobility companies really uh, evening the playing field? For city dwellers? Sure, I think there's no question about it because this is the, the way that we're getting things done in cities in America today are with these new kinds of partnerships. So, what cities and the private sector have to do is start to play well with one another, right? And transit agencies, metropolitan planning organizations, all these different governmental units that we have now have to start to figure out ways to play better with one another. It's not going to be just selling over everything to the private sector. It's not going to be just doing everything that the public sector wants to do. There has to be some give and take there. And again, issues like data are going to be these really critical issues that we've got to figure out how we're going to, to share data, you know, figure out what, kind of, what do we do about proprietary data. All these things that sound mundane maybe to some folks are really, really critical to getting things done right now. If we don't make progress on those things, we're going to get stymied. Oh, well, then let me ask you, since you're the policy person, in a, in a perfect world, let's say if, if Mayor Pete came to you and said, Robert, I need, I need a good, um, good idea, a good piece of legislation that would be the perfect thing to do in terms of regulation, of uh, the scooters, uh, and particularly of, of data, what would you tell him? What would you propose? Yeah, it's got to be nested in larger things. It can't just be, well, we know that there is data that exists in these private firms, and we want to extract it. We don't know what we're going to do with it yet, but we know we want it. We've got to start to figure out what are you actually going to do with that data. Cities right now don't have the kind of sophisticated data scientists and those folks who can really take this trove, trove of data to do all kinds of interesting urban planning things that we haven't had the ability mm -hmm. to do for years. Now, we have to, now we're starting to have that ability. So they've got to have their self organized internally in order to take advantage of this. Once that happens and they can articulate, here's what we need, here's what we're going to do with it, and here's how this benefits us as a partnership, then we'll start to break through. So is there a need that you recognize right now that um, mayors like Mayor Pete don't see yet? A need in, on data? Uh -huh. Yeah. That they, should, that they should regulate? Well, part of it is that there is, we have origin destination data. I don't want to get too wonky for folks, but we have all this data that we didn't, that before was modeled or surveyed, and it was very imprecise, and we see the results that we've had you know, in, for years. Mm -hmm. We have an imperfect transportation system right now. Some of the data that's being generated through technology, a lot by private firms, is giving us that ability to better plan the system of the future, to understand who's being served, how they're being served, and particularly dealing with some of these issues around social equity and making sure that it's actually benefiting entire cities and not just folks like me on K Street. You know, Rachel, I've, I've seen you nodding through, through Robert's answers and I'm just wondering if share whatever thoughts you were going through your head as he was talking 
No, I mean, I think, I think that's right. I think we are, you know, what, one of the things we're working on is, is products that are, that are data products that uh, encompass all of our different options, right? So that encompass the, the, the ride sharing options as well as, um, as, well as the, the bike and scooter options. But, but get, you know, taking an example of, of what's going on right now in New York City is a good example. So there's obviously City Bike is, uh, you know, has a docked bike program in New York, that program does not serve the entire city effectively at all. Um, and, and one of the reasons that, that Uber and Jump participated in, in a, New York, a project with New York City is that we now have pilot programs that are in the South Bronx and that are in Staten Island. And these are areas that historically have had virtually no uh, service whatsoever by the docked programs. And so I think, you know, the, particularly uh, for a while, I think these, these docked programs, whether in bikes or, or scooters or, or other areas, were very appealing to the cities because they, um, they thought of them as creating order and uh, you know, a way to kind of measure and, and monitor, but they haven't worked. And they haven't worked in the same way as we're seeing uh, a, lot of, a lot of the dockless programs. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, in, in D.C. the city has been very, very happy with, with Jump um, and particularly the, the, uh, the, the dockless. And we have what's called a lock to program. So you actually still lock it to something. So it creates the same sense of order. It doesn't have the risk of you know, a bike being across a, a, you know, in the street or a, a bike being uh, across a sidewalk when someone on a wheelchair needs to get by, so it, it still creates the same sense of order. But uh, it, what it doesn't do is uh, have a city go in with an assumption of where people are going to need these programs. And when the cities go in with those assumptions, you know what? It's this area. This area is very well covered by bikes. But if you go into Ward 7 and 8, there are very few, uh, there are very few bike docking. And what you're, we're actually seeing is there's a ton of jump bike usage. There's a ton of usage in those areas in which you aren't restricted simply by where there is physical infrastructure that uh, a private company and the city have you know, deemed uh, you know, kind of worthy of investment. And so, you know, I think this is why I think some of the, this technology is so exciting. And I think where cities, there are some cities that are really trying to be prescriptive, being prescriptive about the number of, of bikes or scooters, being prescriptive about where they need to be. And, and what we're actually seeing, and if you think about, take, look 10 years ago, cities didn't predict Uber. Um, and if they had, a lot of people would have started Uber, right? And, and uh, what we have, what we've seen, though, is that the cities that create rule, clearly create the right, sensible regulations, create rules that ensure that people are safe, ensure that there is, you know, there isn't a mass amount of uh, of, of scooters or bikes that are um, all over all over the streets. Um, ensure that there are programs like the boost program that we have that subsidize the rides for people in low income areas. And that's something that Jump has invested in uh, a lot. It, ensuring that there are those kind of programs, but then, in, but then allowing companies and allowing companies to work with cities to let these programs thrive. And there are some cities that are regulate, you know, basically are, are, are regulating regulating it such that it will never be the, the kinds of, it will never create the kinds of mobility that people in their cities are, are asking for. And this is why we really have to work on these <clears throat> partnerships because it's never going to be all public or all private because these are profit-making firms. There's nothing wrong with that, but we have to recognize that. And so there are things that are very attractive to a private 
uh, company, and there are public policy goals that cities and metropolitan areas want to achieve, social equity being the top of that list. So that's where there's always going to have to be this partnership, so it's a give and take mm-hmm. and not just one or the other. And, and that's where the issue on, on caps come into play for us. Like in, in D.C. today, we're only allowed to have, you know, 400 scooters to service a city. You can't adequately service a city. Uh, on, on 400 scooters. Obviously, right now there, there's uh, new guidelines that have been proposed uh, to, to increase that, but you know only only so slightly. Um, if we want to be able to adequately serve underserved communities effectively, I mean, we need to look at you know cities that have you know modeled it out, have been very uh, if they've developed caps, it's been dynamic caps. So we're looking at various utilization rates uh, to see. Um, how they're being used, and that way we can then plan it out effectively. I mean, that's why you know, as a as a private company, even like we don't just dump a bunch of scooters in, in an area. Like we want we want to work with government to figure out what is the right rules of the road, what is what are the right numbers we need in any given market, and so that way we can see uh, all communities kind of uh, thrive. So, Brandon, then <clears throat> for a city like Washington, what's the magic number? For you, what would be like, the right number of scooters for a city like Washington? I mean, we don't, we don't generally say, okay, like, here's the magic number that everyone is going to be served. I mean, we, we really look at how they're being utilized first, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're seeing you know, all sorts of in, incredible data around you know, uh, um, you know, the bike share program, the utilization around bike share versus scooters. Scooters have significantly higher, um, which would allow us uh, to some of the problems that Rachel was talking about uh, in some of the underserved communities that, you know, you don't see the bike share program where you can get scooters into. Um, You know, you have some cities uh, like San Diego where it's basically like have at it, you know, just don't don't be stupid. Uh, Or then you have some markets that say, okay, 3,000, 4,000 or, you know, adjust over time. So there I, I wouldn't say I mean, D.C. probably needs thousands versus, uh, you know, 400. Uh, you know, D.C. is a little unique where you have, uh, you know, you can have an unlimited number of providers. Some cities you only have three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends. But, but I think what, what and, and again, I, we saw this with, with uh, Uber and ride sharing at the beginning. Uh, we, had, we had cities that say, okay, you know, once you get to 500, that'll be enough, mm-hmm. right? That'll be enough cars or, you know, and, and, and Obviously, uh, that would be you know nowhere near uh, the the number of of uh, ride sharing vehicles to adequately serve uh, a place like um, Washington or any city. You know, we we obviously have 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 thousands, tens of thousands of of ride sharing vehicles every day that are that are on the road. And I think what is important though is that cities. Um, Provide, and I think that's where the dynamic caps are are, are an interesting option. Saying, "Hey, let's make sure these these uh, vehicles are being utilized. Let's make sure they're not sitting idle uh, on on the sidewalk and taking up city you know city space." But let's actually not have an artificial limit. Mm-hmm. Um, let's enable these companies um, and, and this new space to, to thrive. And, and just having seen, seen it with one new space uh, over the past eight years, um, many, it's exactly the same conversations as I was in, um, even in Washington, D.C. I was the GM of Washington and started the Uber business here and having the same exact conversations now again, um, you know, six, uh, seven years later uh, around, um, you know, around new mobility options, whether it's bikes or scooters. So we have a question from, from Twitter. Uh, have any scooter e-bike mobility firms committed to 100% clean electricity whether low carbon or pure renewable? If not, why not? I don't know. 
Uh, so I, I think one of the exciting things, obviously, is 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 the sustainability aspect, right? I mean, we are uh, not only a, a safer but clean mode of transportation, and so as you know, from a scooter perspective, right now, um, we are all about you know less congestion, getting uh, more cars off the road, a cleaner environment, and so you know, right now we're seeing. Uh, kind of an evolution in things like batteries and, and battery technology and how we utilize our, our scooters. So, I mean, we are all for getting, you know, and we, we believe in, you know, also the, you know, the Vision Zero aspect of it. So more, more we can get off the road and have more cleaner modes of transportation, less fatalities we can get to. But, you know, we are, we are all for collaborating with cities on new types of infrastructure that'll get us to to a lot of those goals. Mm -hmm. uh, in the, we're running out of time, but I can't let um, certainly Robert and Rachel go without talking about uh, AI and how that's going to Im impact transportation. Um, Robert, I'll start, I'll start with you. In terms of uh, AI, what does that mean for cities and how cities plan? Well, in terms of autonomous vehicles, for example, I mean, it's, there, nothing dominates the conversation in the transportation landscape like the promise of autonomous vehicles. I think there is a, uh, a feeling that these are around the corner. It's happening next week. We don't need to invest in traditional transportation because these are coming and they're going to change everything. Okay, there's some truth to that, but I think it's much further out. Mm -hmm. um, we have some autonomous vehicles that are starting to run around today, small little shuttles, little um, low-speed autonomous vehicles serving some transit functions, um, which are very good. We see them in closed campus kind of things, ports and, and other kind of campus kind of settings. Those are great. But for the urban environment, I think we're seeing it's going to take some time. And I think firms like, like Uber and Waymo, with all the testing that's been done, there's a reason for this testing. And we're seeing that it is kind of complicated. And I think they've been very responsible in kind of taking a step back. They put more drive, putting drivers back in the car and really starting to work through some of these issues. We've had some very high profile accidents mm -hmm. and things have occurred. Those are kind of the result of all these testings. Once we start to figure those out, then I think we'll start to see deployment, but it's further out. And Rachel, I'll give you the last, the last word on this. How is Uber preparing for the autonomous vehicle uh, surge, I guess, that we'll see in the future. Itself. Yeah, so I mean, Uber has been uh, obviously making significant investments in our own uh, autonomous technology um, as uh, you know, what we have really we've really spent a lot of 2018 taking a step back and making sure that we uh, feel uh, very, very good about all of the, the safety aspects of, um, of our autonomous efforts. And I think we've done a, a full scale review of everything that has gone on within our autonomous group and um, and now are, are restarting putting putting cars back on the road, you know, in in an extremely you know in, in a manner where we have safety drivers and others. But I think one of the things that's pretty interesting, and there's a bunch of a bunch of technologies that we can even think about before we get to a fully autonomous future, which is you know imagine in a city which is is not uh, that far that far out from from what we've got going on, where a ca cars you know a, a vehicle when you're in an Uber and we know that there are bikes or scooters that are going by, that we indicate to a driver where it's safe to pull over, where there are or aren't um, uh, scooters nearby, because we, of course, have the data on where um, our bike and our scooter uh, scooters are in a city. We understand where our cars are. And imagine something popping up that says, you know, don't 
don't open the door until you know you've looked because there are scooter. This is a heavy scooter or bike area. So to be able to combine these modes, I think will make will make our city safer, and I think that's something everyone's really committed to. And with that, we'll have to leave it there. Rachel Holt, Brandon Pollock, Robert Puentes, thank you very much for being here. Uh, thank you all for joining me, and we're going to move on to the move on to the next segment. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.